the older I get, um, the more I love prayer. I'll just, just be honest, I just absolutely love prayer. Prayer is a, um, it's, it's the, as I, as I mentioned, um, it, it's so amazing. It's this powerful, powerful weapon we have, but it's also this beautiful form of intimacy with our Father in heaven. It's a communion with Him. It's talk with Him. It's conversation with Him. And so I'm very thankful uh, to have that privilege of prayer. As we look today in the book of Ruth, so far, if you have been here for these Wednesday morning studies, uh, each week we go through a book of the Bible, and it is typically uh, quite a bit. It's a lot. We went through Genesis, and we went through Exodus, and then through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we, as we've gone through, uh, and we finished up Judges yesterday, uh, last week, and today is the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is the shortest book we've had. Uh, the joke uh, in our staff has been each week after Wednesday, I will go down to the office and I'll take all my stuff down there and, um, and, I, and I just sit for a minute and I'm like, oh, man, that was a lot. <laughs> we just went through an entire book of the Bible and it was like a labor, right? It was a, this uh, labor of love to go through and dig and, and, and research and, and, and try my best to see how the picture is putting together. And uh, uh, Charles has made fun of me almost every week. He said, how can you figure out the thread that you're trying to, to share? I was like, man, it's, it's the Lord. Like, it really is like trying to figure it out, trying to walk through it. Like, I've got a lot of resources I'm pulling from and a lot of things. But as I've been praying, how can I break this down in a way that is, gives us a clear overview of this book? And so he made the joke last week. He said, well, this week you get a little bit of a break. And I said, how so? He said, well, it's the book of Ruth. It's really short. And so, just so you are aware, I usually have three pages of notes. Today I have four. I don't know how that happened, but it happened that way um, as I was preparing for uh, the book of Ruth. And, and part of it is, it's, yes, it's a shorter book, but the hard part is, how do you do a good survey of a smaller thing, right? you got to kind of dig a little bit, and then kind of back up, and then dig a little more, and then back up. So, we will see how this goes today, but <clears throat> supposedly this is the easier book today for me. Uh, it's what the staff says, so we will see how that, how that plays out. I love the book of Ruth. A couple of things about the book of Ruth. Uh, this story took place during the time of the judges. It says that in the book, in the first part of the book. So if you're laying out a timeline, this one kind of lays over top of the book of Judges. So if we find out what time or what season, most scholars believe this took place during the time of Samson, uh, in the, so kind of towards the end of the book of Judges. So uh, what I would like to do today is I'd like to see this, uh, again, as we're trying to back up and see this whole survey, this whole picture of the Bible and Scripture, I would like to look at it um, in, uh, uh, in, in these couple of parts but what I want us to do is kind of overlay it and see, during the book of Judges last week, one of the things we talked about was it was kind of broken up in these three areas of, you know, when they were first Israel going into battle, and so the combat of Israel going into battle with people, and then the chaos, and how when the judges showed up, they were just kind of in chaos. It was that automatic um, kind of just repeat of, 
of cycle of disobedience and then, then calling out to God and then God sending a redeemer to a restore to restore Israel back to himself. And so this constant thing, six or seven times, this cycle went over and over and over. And then, then as it ended, we saw a lot of corruption. We saw it ended with um, this picture of, of even Moses' grandson being the prophet of a false religion. And so we see how it ended with just corruption in Israel. Um, and so I want to I take that same theme as we're looking at the whole and so if you lay the book of Ruth over top of that, as the corruption was going on, Israel had a very, very dark time, right? I mean, we're talking abandonment of God. They ran away from God. They turned their back on God. And so the book of Ruth, as we're going to kind of lay over the top of this uh, in this same timeline, even, even in the time of darkness, there's still some faithful. There's still some that are faithful to the Lord. And so I want us to look at this today, um, and, and the book of Ruth gives us a, a beautiful picture of something pretty amazing. Um, and so I want to I look at this uh, as, we, as we walk through it. This same season in the book of Judges of chaos and corruption, uh, we, can, we can see this scene inserted here, this book of Ruth. Um, so here, here's what, um, what we notice. In Israel... Uh, we see the first part of Judges with a lot of moral issues. Then we see a lot of spiritual apostasy, meaning those people that were against God, they, they physically, emotionally, spiritually rebelled against God. That's apostasy, uh, openly saying God was not the way they wanted to go. And in the book of Ruth, we see just a little bit of spiritual faithfulness of some. And, and what we notice is in dark times... Even the smallest light makes the biggest difference, right? If, if this room is completely pitch black and I light a candle, everybody's eye is drawn to the candle, right? Even though the whole room is dark, one little light is beautiful and amazing. So the book of Ruth is our light in this, in this scene, in this timeline. Now, it doesn't start out super great, uh, as we will look at in just a minute, um, but the book of Ruth gives us the link. This is another thing about when you look at the survey as a whole. The book of Ruth gives us the link between the judges and the coming King David. Okay, So it links these timelines together. It gives us this beautiful picture of how this works. Um, and so we'll see at the end how, uh, how that timeline genealogy works. Um, this is a side note. I don't know if it's worth anything, but I was doing a lot of research and found out that the book of Ruth, did you know, I did not know this till this, this past couple of weeks, um, the book of Ruth was actually read every year at the Feast of Pentecost. I did not realize this. I saw, I, I had been noticing things about the book of Ruth. This story was read by the children of Israel at the Feast of Pentecost. Each year the feast would come around, uh, they, would, they would read this, uh, this story. Part, partly because of the, the, the names behind each of these people uh, have a deeper meaning, have a deeper uh, uh, sense of spiritual connection, but uh, also just the fact that this story is the light in the darkness, right? And so whenever you get together at the Feast of Pentecost and you try to celebrate something, you're looking for the light to celebrate, 
Ruth was that light to celebrate. So uh, I think that's just kind of an interesting side note. Um, that, one, that one's worth the cost of admission today. Um, so as we, uh, we dive in, we're going to look at Ruth in three parts. Now there's only four chapters. So the first chapter we're going to look at, we're going to title that The Backsliders. That's what we're going to title that one. So the first chapter is the first section. It's The Backsliders. The second chapter and the third chapter, we're going to call that one The Believer. And then the fourth chapter, uh, the fourth chapter we are going to call the bridegroom. They all start with the letter B. Isn't that amazing? That is some preacher work right there if you've ever seen it. Uh, but as we look at these three sections in the book of Ruth, uh, I want you to see the, the first chapter, something happens. Uh, and, and we're going to read a couple of verses today, but uh, we're going to really try to keep this as an overview so that we can see it all. Um, I have uh, just, you know, our time here together today. Would love to do a seven-hour Bible study on it, but I'm not as smart as David Platt, so uh, you'll just have to forgive me. Um, I don't quite have that ability. Um, but uh, there's, we see the book of Ruth opens up with a famine in the promised land. So the first six verses give us a, a lot of things that happen. There's like 10 years that cover, 10 plus years that are covered in the first six verses. That's, that's wild. We, we, so even the first six verses are literally an overview of 10 years. Okay, that's, that's a long span of time. But the first, it starts out with a famine in the promised land. Now, a famine in the promised land means there is a, there is a displeasure from God. It's a divine displeasure. This is God not happy with his people. Now, again, if we know of the timeline, so it's in the book of Judges, we know that's the time of chaos and corruption that are going on. God is not happy with the corruption that's taking place. So God, God has this famine. What, what that means is God stops the rain. That's what he does. He stops the rain. What happens when the rain stops? The crops all wither. The cattle all die. There's no more food. There's no vegetation. There's no... It's now hunger. Some disease comes in. Hunger, disease, misery, and death. That's now what's in the promised land. Like how in the world did we go from the exodus... And, and I mean, if you, if you think about it, when God called his people out of Egypt, he says that land that Abraham walked on, I'm going to give to my people. Here's where they're going. God says, this is the land. They take, they take them through the Jordan River. I mean, everything looks great. The land flowing with milk and honey. And now God just stopped some rain. And the people are miserable. The people are dying. And so we pick up our story with that, thing, with that scene in the background. And that story begins with a man um, by the name of Elimelech. Elimelech was a, um, he was a man who, his name means, my God is king. That's what his name means. Elimelech means, my God is king. Uh, we see something, though, with Elimelech. We see him backslide. I said this first chapter, we're going to look at this first section we're going to call it the backsliders. Um, there's a difference, by the way, in backsliding and apostasy. Okay, so apostasy, if you read the book of Jude, you can hear a lot about apostates, apostasy. You can hear a lot about people that are against God's will, against what God wants. Openly, like willing to say, I am not for that. A backslider, however, is different. A backslider says, 
I'm going to rationalize my disobedience. Okay? So they make sense of what they're doing and think it's the best thing to do, and so they just, they just step away. It's kind of like, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a Baptist church forever, my whole life. You know, I was in church nine months before I was born. You know what I'm talking about? My dad being a pastor my whole life, I was always around church, and I always heard the term backsliding, right? And it was always pictured as, well, you used to sit in the front of the church, now you're sitting in the back of the church, and then you're only coming twice a week rather than five times a week. Well, now you're coming once a month rather than, you know, we just kept talking about how that slide happens. It's slow. It's a slow fade away. That's what it is. And what ha- what the, the reason it happens that way is you rationalize. And the more you rationalize, the more you give yourself the permission to rationalize a little more. And the more you give yourself permission to rationalize a little more. It started out with, you know, oh, well, my kid is in baseball. We do a tournament once a, once a semester on a Sunday, so we're going to miss that Sunday. Well, everything turned out fine. Nobody got sick. Nobody died. So you say, oh, well, God wasn't that mad that I missed one Sunday. And God did something great on the ball field. My kid won the game. So it's obviously okay. So then the next time that turn, the tournament comes around, we're going to miss church again, and then we're going to miss our fellowship together again. And then our Sunday school class is doing a, um, a fellowship dinner. Well, it's, ba- it's baseball practice that night, so it's okay if I miss again. because it's... So what happens is you slowly get to where now you're on a travel team that plays every single weekend, and you just pick up church online. Then it's like, all right, I don't even need to be there. I've got church right here in my, in my pocket, on my cell phone. And then, next thing you know, you say, well, it's hard for me to keep my attention on the cell phone, so it's fine, I'll just pick it up some other time. Now, once a month, you're watching church online, and you've rationalized the whole thing, right? Now, it didn't start out, you weren't here every single week, every single time the doors were open, and then one day you're just like, yeah, I'm out, I'm not doing this anymore, and then once a month you're watching it online. That's not how it worked. It's a slow-fading process. Same thing is happening right here. Elimelech, my God is king. He takes his family, his wife Naomi, uh, whose name means my delight or um, uh, very um, uh, pleasant person is what this name means, and he and his wife turn their back on the place they, they lived, God's, where God's people were, get this, in the city of Bethlehem. Man. So already in this survey, what I'm, as I step back, a man by the name of my God is king turns his back on the city of Bethlehem and he leaves. Why? Because it got hard. There was a famine in the land. And so instead of trusting that the Lord would take care, instead of trusting that the Lord was going to do something, um, he, he turns his back and he leaves. Uh, now, more than likely, if I can just say, I believe there's a reason these six verses cover ten years. Because most of the time when someone backslides, they don't plan to do it long right? I'll be back. I'll come back. I'm just going to miss one week, and then I'll be back. Well, one week was easy to miss. Now I'm going to miss two. Well, two weeks was easy. Now I'm going to miss three. 
I intend on coming back. I worked at a church uh, a couple of years back that uh, we had a, a person that we had hired and uh, it was a kind of a mess of a situation and there was an embezzlement thing that took place and it was wild, it was crazy. And so I happened to be in the room whenever we had let this, this person go and um, the phrase was, I plan to give it all back. That was their plan. I, I, I just needed it for this difficult season. I plan to pay everything back that, that, that I, I borrowed, right? It was that whole, that whole thing. And as I was sitting there, my heart just kind of sunk because I thought, well, there's no way you could have afforded to pay this back. There's no way, there's no rational thought in your mind that had this, like, and we have checks and balances all over the place. How did you think you were going to get away with this? Like, there's, there's just no way this is possible. But what happens is we rationalize a moment and we think this is just for this moment and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure and take care of it later. I'll make sure and repay this. I'll make sure and show back up. I'll make sure and come back. And then what happens is in, within six verses, there's a lot of life that happens that we just don't know about. Because as you're backsliding, as you're leaving and turning your back on the presence of God and the people of God, when you turn your back on the people of God, there's not much purpose in your life that's worth writing about. Just not. And so we see Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons. They take off. They don't intend to go forever. They don't intend to live in a pagan place for the rest of their life. They intend as soon as the famine's over, we'll come back, right? That's what, that's what our plan will be. Um, and then we know that, um, so we see moving to Moab is bad. Moving to Moab is bad. So we, we know that in the first just couple of verses. Moving to Moab is bad. But what happens next, even worse. Listen to what happens next. There are two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion, these two guys, uh, they marry women of Moab. So now what's happened is the next generation has chosen to intermarry with pagan women. Now, God is not happy. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but these two sons married these two pagan women. Now, before I, I jump in here, I want to share, I wrote down this couple of phrases because it wasn't just that these women were pagan women's, women. This is that these women had no knowledge. Now, I want you to think about this when it comes to marriage. Most of us in here understand the idea or the purpose or the reason of marriage. And most of us understand like, it's, it's like your whole life is affected by marriage. Like there is nothing that my wife doesn't affect in my life. She affects everything, right? Everything. I mean, the car I drive is not as nice as the car she drives. You know what I'm talking about? Like everything is affected by her. And so I want you to think about in light of marriage, think about this. These women had no knowledge of the true and living God. These, knowledge had, these women had no understanding of the maker of heaven and earth. No knowledge of the Bible, the Scripture. No knowledge of spiritual things. No knowledge of God's people at all. And no knowledge of His salvation. They had not heard the stories of the blood of the Lamb that, that helped them, that rescued them as they made their exodus. They had no knowledge or understanding of any of that. And these guys said, we're going to just, we're going to attach ourselves and our lives to these women that had no understanding. When I, uh, when, when I got married, uh, when I asked my wife to marry me, we, there was one of the 
one of the things that we had talked about was we both, we met on the mission field. So we both worked for the North American Mission Board. She served in West Virginia and the Eastern Coast. I served out in Texas and kind of middle, uh, middle United States. And we served, but we served for the same organization. And whenever we, we were getting married, we talked about, I don't know that I could marry somebody that didn't know what that experience was like, right? Because we, we both experienced something incredible those summers that we were missionaries that we served the lord and we did things like through these organizations and it was amazing and we thought as we were as we were as we got engaged i thought can you imagine marrying somebody that didn't do this and she was like well no it was a massive part of my life i was like it's a massive part of my life i was called to the ministry that summer that i was a missionary like everything in my life changed I was like, we had so much in common because of that mutual experience. These guys are marrying women that have no mutual experience. None. No mutual connection to God. No, no mutual connection to anything spiritual. So these two guys, they married these women, which is a next bad step. As soon as you backslide, again, you rationalize again, right? So that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing these backsliders now. The, this man who should have led his family to stay with the Lord, stay with God's people. Instead, he moves his family away from God's people. His sons now have very, very loose foundation. So now they're marrying pagan women. And then what happens next? All three of those men die. All three of those men die. What happens after you move to Moab? What happens whenever you marry in Moab? The next thing that happens is there's misery in Moab. That's the next thing that takes place. This woman, Naomi, has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. And now she's there with her daughters-in-law. And as we see this, this widow is left. Even the terminology, it says uh, in verse number 5, both Malion and Chilion died so that the the woman was left with her two sons, uh, was left without her two sons and her husband. She was left. I want you to think about this. She had none of God's people around her. None. No support from the people of God. Let me tell you what happens when you start backsliding and you move to Moab. And then you you loosen your morals a little bit, and then you just kind of marry outside of the people of God, and you kind of marry un uh, um, you know uh, unequally yoked with non-believers. You you marry away from that misery comes, and then you're left lonely, like you you you're now out there on an island because you put yourself there. And then what happens most of the time? Most of the time, what happens is we say, God, how dare you let this happen to me? That's our, that's our response. And God's like, I didn't move you to Moab. I didn't loosen your morals so you'll marry in Moab. I didn't do any of that. That was all your choice, every bit of that. So when we backslide, this is the next step that happens. She's lost, she's lonely, she's in deep need. Verse number 6 tells us that the famine had ended. Now this is 10 plus years that this, these verses had taken place. 10 plus years. The famine is now over, so what does Naomi do? She has this passion in her heart, i got to go back home. I need to go back to the people of God. There's been a revolutionary change in her life. She's got to go back. Her testimony uh, to her daughter-in-laws, she said, Listen, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going back home. I'm never coming back to Moab again. This place ruined me. <laughs> That's what she's saying to her daughters-in-law. 
This place, I'm never coming back here. And then the daughters both said, we'll go with you. We'll go with you. And then, then if in the testimony of Naomi, what she says to her daughters-in-law is she says, listen, girls, there's no self-respecting Hebrew man that's going to marry you. There's just not. You're, you're a Moabite. You're a person that's not. No, no Hebrew man that is devout, that is, that is worth his salt, <laughs> is, going to, is going to marry you. And so Orpah, one of the daughters, says, well, in that case, I'm going back home. So she goes back to, to her family, her, her Moabite ways. But Ruth, this lady, says, listen, I, I've seen God in you. I've seen, I, I want, wherever you go, I'll go. What, the God that you serve, I'll serve. Whatever happens, I want to be with you because I trust that you come from good people. I want to see the way that you live. And so these two women, these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, were faced with a decision, a choice that every one of us are faced with. We can choose the world, the Moabite way, or we can choose the Word and the, the people of God, the person of God. Jesus is the Word, right? We know, we know that. So Ruth is faced with this decision. Orpah is faced with this decision. Orpah says, I'm going to choose to go back to what's comfortable and normal. Ruth says, I'm going to choose to go in faith, not knowing what to expect, right? Not knowing. So she chooses that. Are we going to go to Moab or are we going to turn to the Messiah? That's the question that we have. Um, And then you would think as soon as this happens, Naomi surely is saying, oh my goodness, my daughter-in-law loves me so much. She's going with me. This is a radical change. Instead, Naomi says, I'm going to change my name to Mara, which means bitter. She's gone from pleasant or uh, delightful to now bitter. Because what happens when you backslide and you let it go for 10 plus years? You're just not going to have that happy joy that you had once before. You're just not going to. It's hard to come out of that. But we see something that transitions next in the next two chapters. Uh, So in chapters 2 and 3, what we will find is uh, it focuses in on the believer and it focuses in on what happens next. So Ruth, uh, we're going to walk through this as this survey, as we look over this. Ruth has made a decision, right? Her decision was to go to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. So she's made a decision to follow after the things of God. That's what she's made a decision to do. Because every, every reason she told Naomi, it wasn't, oh, I feel um, like I'm in debt to you because you, uh, kept, you, you kept being nice and kept cooking meals. That wasn't what she said. She said, I'm going to follow after, after you and your God because I believe in the faith that you have. So Ruth says, I'm going to make a decision to turn toward the things of God. Now, after that decision was made, the growth that happens, she, she made her decision, she changed her direction, but she still had a lot to learn. Okay, so the first, the first chapter we see uh, Ruth make a decision to follow after the things of God. Her direction in her life is completely the opposite of Orpah, who turned to the world, right? So now, what happens next? She's got a lot to learn. Um, the next two chapters are absolutely beautiful. After the decision is made to follow after the things of God, Chapter 2, we find Ruth in the fields of Boaz, okay? 
So we find Ruth in the field of Boaz. In chapter 3, we find her at the feet of Boaz. Now, if I'm just looking back at this, and I'm seeing this, I'm almost watching this spiritual transformation and this intimacy of getting closer to the one that would redeem her. Because she, made the, she already made the decision, well, now she's got to be sanctified. She's got to walk and find out in her journey how she can get closer and closer to this person, Boaz. So, um, and Boaz, by the way, in chapter number two, his name appears nine times. What happened is, again, if we're looking at this from a long way off, what happened is the first chapter was all about self. The next chapter, after the decision is made, it's all focused on the Redeemer. You're, it's not focused on self anymore. Now we're looking at this person who is the Redeemer. We were once centered on self, now we're centered on the Redeemer. Um, Ruth, we find her, she's gleaning in the fields. Now I want you to think about this. In chapter 2, she starts gleaning in the fields. She is brand new at this. She does not understand the people of God. She doesn't have a history with the people of God. She doesn't know how the people of God act. But as soon as she made the decision to follow after Naomi's faith and the faith she had and the people of God, she made a decision. She didn't know anything about them, but she made her decision. So now she's going to live the same way the people of God live. She just sees they're out gleaning in the fields. So she goes to glean in the fields. She says, I don't understand all this yet, but this is how the people of God live. So this is how I'm going to live. Just that simple. Man, if we would just say, a new believer, I would love it, love it, if a new believer were to come into New Providence and they looked at us and they said, this is how the people of God live, so this is how I'm going to live. Which makes me ask myself the question, am I living like the people of God should live? <laughs> right? Because if, if somebody's going to come and say, I'm going to model my life after this person because I knew nothing of God, and they have lived with God. I knew nothing of faith. Their whole life has been about faith. They understand the depths of who God is. And what they're doing must be right. Like there's some serious weight that that puts on us, some serious pressure. We better be living like the people of God. So when somebody joins our faith community, they say, I don't know much about this faith community yet, but if this is how we live, I'm going to live like this. So we find Naomi already gleaning, or we find Ruth gleaning in the fields, uh, doing what they would do. And then we find, as Boaz is first introduced in chapter 2, uh, we hear his first words. Listen, the first words that Ruth hears uh, from, from Boaz's mouth are these words that point us to the God of Israel. He says, the Lord be with you. He goes and addresses all of the people in his fields and he says, the Lord be with you. That's his first, the first words that Ruth hears from this man. Like, that's just so great. It points us to the God of the covenant, right? The God of the covenant of Israel. He says, the Lord, our God, be with you. And then um, as we walk through and as we see Boaz, he does a, a thing where he scans the whole field. And you can see as he is, as, as this man who owns the field, he walks up. And he looks across, and, and you can almost picture this man looking across all of his field, right? And he sees every single person out there. 
But then he says to one of his, to, to the man that's in charge of the, the laborers, he said, who's this one? Tell me about this one. How, like, the more I picture this, the more I see this, I'm seeing Boaz is obviously this picture of Jesus, and he knows everybody in his field. He knows every story represented. And so he sees this one, and he says, tell me this one's story. I want to get to know this one because I don't know them yet. I don't know this person yet. I want to get to know them on a deeper level. See, when Jesus scans the field of New Providence, he knows every single story. He knows every personality. He knows every mindset. He knows every thought. He knows all of it. All of it. He knows us individually uh, with our different talents and different backgrounds. And so he comes to her in verse number 8. And as we see the next couple of phrases, it says, Boaz said to Ruth in verse number 8, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that, are, uh, that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So this is her this is his conversation with her. And I don't know if you heard, in, that, in those two verses, here's what Boaz said to her. I'm gonna, don't go anywhere else. I'm calling you to be separated from everybody else. And I'm calling you to be set apart for this specific task and this specific work. And then he says, I'm going to make sure that you are secure and that you're safe. He said, I've already told the men not to touch you. You're protected right here. So he's, he's called her out. And he says, don't, don't go into other places. Stay right here. Be set apart for exactly what I'm calling you to do. And then know that you're safe and protected here. And then he even goes a step further. And he says, you will be satisfied right here. Why? Because I will let you drink anything you want to drink. And you don't even have to go and, and get the water. These men I have sent to draw the water from the well. You can drink until you are completely satisfied. He says, I, I'm going to bless you so much, you don't even have to go do the work. Somebody else is going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure you are provided for, make sure you are safe, and make sure you have a life of purpose. I want you to do exactly what I want you to do. You're going to have a purpose-filled, satisfied life that you are 100% provided for. Like, no wonder this story is read at Pentecost. Like, I, I'm having a Holy Spirit fit in me right now, thinking about how Jesus calls us out to be separated from the world, to be set apart for His work and His purposes, to be safe and protected because He's in charge of all of this going on, and then He's just constantly satisfying us by providing for us, drinking from wells we didn't dig as I keep going back to in the promised land. Like, he's provided already for us. It's beautiful, beautiful. So as he sees this, he, he, he sets it apart. And then, so she can't even understand why is he being so kind? I don't understand this. I don't understand this. And listen to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2. Um, we're gonna, I gotta move a little bit quicker through this because this is, it's gonna get even better. Uh, but in verses 11 and 12, Boaz answered her. She's like, why are you being so nice to me. I don't understand. I'm a foreigner. You, you Surely you didn't take notice of that. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you didn't know before. 
the Lord repay you for what you have done, and I and a full reward be given to you by the Lord and the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Did you hear what Boaz said to her? He says, listen, you took a step of faith to come under the wings of the God of Israel. And I, as a representation of the God of Israel, am going to make sure that you know he's a safe place and he's always going to take care of you. He's saying, it's because of your faith that I am giving you these blessings so that you understand God is going to be faithful. He's, you've put faith in Him. He's faithful. He, you can put faith in Him. You can trust Him. He's good. He's strong. He's amazing. He's the one that we need to keep our focus and our eyes on. And then what we see uh, in verse 17, it says she takes this amount of grain that she has harvested. And it's, it's enough, by the way, I was looking up, it's a, a, a F, 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 uh, of uh, 17, verse 17. Um, let's read this. Uh, let's see, down in verse number 17. Um, it says, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And this is the same amount. This is like, by the way, 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Like, that's, that's more than... So here, here's what, if you, if you break it out, if you go back to uh, the book of Exodus, whenever they went out to gather manna every morning, you remember that, right? They, they went out to get an omer of manna. That was enough for a day. Uh, this is the same equivalent of 10 of those. So here, here's what, and you want to go the law of numbers here, you want to look at some biblical numerology here, here's what God is saying. You're, you show up, and I'm going to give you 10 times what you thought you needed. I'm, going to, I'm, a, I'm the God of multiplication, is what he's saying. I'm going to provide for you way more than even what the last generation experienced. I'm going to give you so much, and you're going to know it all came from me. That's what it came from. And she, listen, Ruth is, she's blown away by all of this. How is this even happening to her, a foreigner? Who, who was in the land of Moab, she's thinking, Moab has no idea what's, what's up, <laughs> right? She's like, I wish Orpah had come with me because this is unreal. This is unthinkable. How is this even going on? It gets even better. So the next chapter, what we see, we move from the field of Boaz to the feet of Boaz because Naomi tells Ruth, listen, you need a closer relationship with Boaz. That's what Naomi says to Ruth in the third chapter. She says, you need to get closer to this guy. You need to desire a deeper, closer, more intimate relationship with this Redeemer because he has the power and the authority to redeem you and buy you with this beautiful purchase to rescue you from the land of the pagans and bring you into our family. That's what, that's what Naomi tells Ruth. Now, already I'm getting chills even though I got a jacket on, right? This is a powerful thing. So we see her in the field of Boaz. She, she makes a decision to leave Moab and to follow after the things of God. She gets to God's people and she just starts the work. Man, she just gets right into it. She doesn't take classes. She doesn't go through Experiencing God 101. She doesn't go through all of these deep Bible study things. She shows up and says, what are they doing? I want to do it too. 
because I've made my decision, I've changed the direction of my life, I'm now willing to go and do whatever it is they do. She gets into the fields, and then she's met personally by the Redeemer. And the Redeemer begins to separate her. He begins to call her and to a specific purpose. He says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you safety. I'm going to make sure that no one harms you. And I'm going to make sure your cup is full. And you think your cup is full with an omer of grain. I'm going to give you 10 omers of grain. I'm going to give you more than you can even possibly ever imagine. Why are you doing this? I'm a foreigner. Because you made the decision to leave your former life and to come after the things of God. So because you made that decision, you're going to get... Is anybody else... Like, I don't know. I may preach this Sunday. This is just too good to, to let, let go of. So he's bringing her out of this. So then she goes home and tells Naomi, you're never going to believe it. Listen to who I met. Listen to what happened. And Naomi was like, I didn't even tell you about Boaz. He's a relative. He could, he could be one that could bring you into the family. And so as, he, as she tells her that, she says, what you need to go is you need to go sit at the feet of Boaz. So she goes, uncovers his feet. You can read the story in chapter 3. But what happens is uh, we, we even see um, uh, Boaz say something to Ruth uh, that was, is a really cool thing in verse number 11. Um, he says, everyone knows that you are a virtuous woman. I talked to my podcast this morning about uh, this specific verse when I was talking about, you know, Proverbs 31 tells us a virtuous woman who can find. Who, this is so rare. And I began thinking, she's only been here. Ruth has only been in the city for a couple of days. I mean, this is not a long time. More than likely, she's been here maybe a week. Maybe. And already, Boaz tells her, listen, all the townsmen, all of those doorkeepers, all of those gatekeepers have told me that you are a virtuous. We all know you're a virtuous woman. I began to think, man, how did she go around like, it's, it's because a virtuous woman is, is rare. That's how rare it is. When one showed up in town, news traveled. Man, this girl's different. She's, she's got this virtue about her. She, and you know what it is? She put her faith in the God of, of Israel. That's what it is. She says, I'm going to trust the God of Israel with my future. She was a widow. She lost her husband. She was one who had been miserable in the world. And she turned to the God of Israel and everything changed. Well, here's what happens next. This is, this is where I get excited. This is the part, if I had to just sum this up into one Bible study, I would just preach from, from Ruth 3 and 4. Because we're still talking about the believer, we're still talking about Ruth's story, but listen to what happens in chapter 3. Boaz tells Ruth, there is someone that is a closer redeemer for you. He says, so in our family, the way the law is set up, there is somebody that's a closer kinsman that is, actually gets first crack at you, that can actually redeem you before I can. So here's, here's what that means. Right? So Boaz tells her, there is one closer. The law states the closest redeemer is the first one to be able to redeem you. And so he tells her, he tells her this. By saying that, he's telling Ruth, you have to follow the law of God. You have to follow the law of God. And the law of God states that the closest kinsman is the one that can redeem. But 
He also says, because he loves Ruth, he says, Boaz tells her this, but here's the deal. I'm going to go and fulfill that law for you. I'm going to go and deal with the law so that I can bring you into the family because I love you. And love will fulfill the law. So Boaz goes in the, this is just, this is crazy. I just cannot believe, the more I read this story, the more I'm like, no way this is, why have we not, like, why do we not just like post this all over our walls and our churches? Like, this is incredible. So the first thing we see in chapter four, as that transition happens, he tells, he tells Ruth, you stay right here. I'm going to go take care of the law for you. I'm going to go take care of this and I will be back to cover all of this in love. So in chapter four, it says that Boaz goes up and meets the other redeemer. Um, and so when Boaz goes and meets this other redeemer, um, we, we're noticing something already. So in the transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, what we see is there's something, listen, this is, this is really good, okay? There's something that stands in between the pagan and Jesus. And that thing that stands in between them is the law. It, it, it literally, the law is standing in between this relationship from from. from paganism from enemies of God from the world there is something there that stands in between our relationship with God and that is the law and so what does the redeemer do to make sure that the law is 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 fulfilled and accounted for to bring us into that relationship and here's what he does he goes in to that other redeemer and by the way that other redeemer in chapter 4 if you read his words the other redeemer says I can't marry a Moabite because it will tarnish my line. That's what that other Redeemer says. You know what I realized? The law, listen to this, the law cannot redeem who it has cursed. The law can't do it. The law can't redeem someone that it's already cursed. So this person is a, is a representation. Now, these are real people. This is, God's, this is how amazing God's, God's plan and his story is. This person, this other redeemer that is closer than Boaz, quote unquote, is a picture of the law that has to be met and fulfilled first. And so this other redeemer says, I'm not going to do that because that would tarnish my line, my ancestry, my legacy will be tarnished if I married someone that's a Moabite, if I married somebody outside of God's family. There's no way I'm going to do that. And so Boaz says, I know you can't do that. That's why I'm here. That's why I came to fulfill this purpose and fulfill this law. See, that's the flaw in that law. It's that it can't redeem who it has cursed. And so what Boaz does is he introduces the principle of love. That's what Boaz introduces in this whole story, the principle of love. And I'll tell you this much, love fulfilled the law. Love took care of the law for Ruth. It fulfilled all the demands of the law. Ruth didn't have to go to the other kinsmen first. Ruth didn't have to work her way to get to, uh, to, to take care of something that she could not. You realize Ruth, because she was a Moabite, could not fulfill the law. She couldn't because it would curse that line. And that person was unwilling and unwavering 
to, to, to bend anything, to, to change anything. And Boaz says, oh, I'm gonna, I love Ruth, and so I'm going to make sure and go and take care of this for her. And then what happens next is Boaz himself pays the price to redeem Ruth. See, there's, and there's, there's another piece of this that I haven't even brought up. Um, there's a property value here. So Boaz has to pay for property as well as Ruth. So Boaz has to pay a price to redeem both the property and the person. Now, if we fast forward a couple thousand years and we see something that happens on the cross, I, I want to say something that I don't usually talk about, something that we don't usually mention in church. We are so fascinated with the fact that Ruth was purchased by Boaz, fulfilling the law and paying the price. We're so fascinated with that, we forget about the property. But do you realize that whenever the, the earth was cursed, everything, everything in it was cursed, God's creation was cursed because of sin and the fall of man. So when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he redeem man, but he redeemed creation. Now, we won't fully see all of that in our lifespan. I would love, I mean, I'm telling you, rapture, all this is going to be great, going to be amazing. But here's what God did. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just purchase the persons, he purchased the property too. He purchased all of it. How did he do it? By the blood of the cross, by taking care and the shedding of blood so that the law would be fulfilled, he made the purchase of all because all was cursed. And so he says, I'm going, to become, I'm going to become sin on this cross so that when I die, the, the law will be fulfilled and the price will be made and the purchase will be made because of the, the price that Christ was willing to pay. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's awesome and amazing. Um, and, and then the book wraps up with a picture for us of some vision. So the book wraps up with the genealogy from Ruth uh, all the way, actually, it goes back to Perez, who was the son of Judah. Um, and then in the end of chapter 4, and what you'll see after uh, Ruth and Boaz marry, uh, there's this genealogy that's taken place. It gives us the, the, the story from the generations from Perez, who is the son of Judah, all the way down to David. And then if you pick up, if you skip over in your Bible a few pages, uh, most of the pages, to the book of Matthew, what you'll find is the genealogy picks up and takes us to Jesus. This woman, Ruth, who, had, who was living in the land of Moab, who married this Israelite who was in disobedience. They, they weren't there because they were there because they backslid. Ruth says, I'm going to put my faith in this God. I'm going to show up and I'm going to do what the people of God do. She meets this kinsman redeemer who comes into her life, fulfills the law that had cursed her, he fulfills that law with love, brings her into his family, and now she is in the direct lineage of Jesus himself. Like, what? Oh my goodness. How does God do this? Like, how in the world is all of this fitting together? He is awesome. Man, he's amazing. As I read through the book of Ruth, I cannot help but think, man, what do you think she understood? She was there telling this man, this wealthy uh, field owner, she told him, she's like, why are you even talking to me? I, I'm, I'm a foreigner. Hold on. 
And the whole time God's saying, I'm weaving a story where from your lineage, she gives birth to a guy who then becomes the grandfather of David. Like what? <laughs> King David, like that one, slaying Goliath, that, that guy. Like Ruth is his great grandmother. Like wh what? God says, I have a story for you. See, you're never too far away for God to use you. Never. He says, just make the decision to turn to me and let me take care of your story. Let God take care of your story today. Man, I, I would love to see. I cannot wait to find out and see what happens in, in the years to come through my family line. I can't wait to see. I believe my daughters are going to be great, strong women of grace. And it's because I'm trying my best to put the foundation of Jesus and the gospel and the law of God and the hope of God and the hope of the gospel. And all, I'm trying my best to put it in my, my daughters so that whenever they grow up and start having kids, they will repeat the process. Only they'll do it better than I did, right? That's my hope. And then they do it better than I did. And then their kids, my grandkids, will do it better than I did. And the whole time I'm thinking, I know this stuff. Ruth had no idea, and she just the whole time was like, how is all this happening to me? This guy pursued me. This guy came and found me. Ruth didn't go try to find the field owner. Ruth was just doing, doing the business she was called to do. The field owner came to her. The field owner brought her into a relationship, and then she had to make the decision. Now remember this. She had to make the decision to move from the field to the feet. That was on her. She said, I desire a closer relationship with this one who pursued me. I'm desiring this, so I'm going to make the steps to be close to this person. Make the steps today to be closer to your kinsman redeemer, because he is so good. Let me tell you, the closer you can walk with him, the better it will all be. I promise you that. As we uh, close today, I just want to encourage you and, and, let, and, and remind you that um, the book of Ruth is a beautiful story that the people of God know well. And um, we, should, we should constantly, cons consistently be reminded that our kinsman redeemer um, fulfilled the law. He took care of us and he brought us into his family. And he is doing something with our story even long after we're gone. Like he still was working through Ruth's testimony through her life. I mean, King David, Jesus like, are you kidding? Like, how did he keep doing that? Generations were affected because of her decision in Moab. I don't know where you are today, but make the decision so that generations can be affected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, I thank you. Lord, this is, your word is so good. I do not know why we are not more obsessed with your word. It is so good. Lord, let us find more joy in our walk because you have already spoken to us. Lord, so many times we, we beg you, we want to hear your voice, and yet we just don't open what your voice said thousands of years ago. And it still rings true today. We can still hear from it today. Lord, let us leave this place today with a fresh word in our spirit that we can make the decision. And when we are making the decision to walk after you, you are going to call us to be separated from everybody else. You're going to call us to a specific task, just as Boaz did for Ruth. You're going to then protect us and give us the security we need to fulfill that task. And then you're going to satisfy us 
by giving us more than we even could possibly ever need. And Lord, I'm not talking about financial gain. I'm talking about the joy of life. Lord, my cup overflows when I read your word because your word gives me energy. God, I'm, this is a season of my life where I've been tired physically. But then I read your word and it gives me this energy from a place I can't even figure out because your word is so good. Let us never take advantage or take for granted your word. Let us learn from it. Let us glean from it. And let us walk closer with you every day. Let us move. Maybe we're in the fields doing the work and we need to move into a closer, more intimate relationship with you. Maybe we need to just be more thankful of you. Maybe we need to be praying for that generation to come. Lord, whatever it is that you're calling us to do, I pray we would do it with faithfulness, with obedience. Lord, your word and your plan is way too good to miss out on. So help us to get every bit of it that we can. Help us to soak it up so that we are changed by your word. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray, our true Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here and going through this. Listen, 1 Samuel next week is going to be good, I promise. It's one of my favorites, so I'm very excited about it. So be here next week, and uh, we'll see what the Lord says.